Jason Trost, welcome back to the Business of Betting podcast. Thanks very much for having me back. So, a lot going on in the world, and we'll get to some uh, some betting topics pretty quickly here. Just before we do, uh, anything impactful in your world? Obviously, many things going on, but anything that you're taking from, from this time that you'll carry forward? Is there any aspects of what the pandemic is doing in this current environment that are useful for you in terms of positives? Well, I, you know, I never knew people wanted to bet in table tennis. So that's something new I learned from this <laughs> pandemic. Um, I didn't even know betting on table tennis was a thing before this. Um, I think I think a lot of the positives are more on the personal side than the work side. But a lot of the, the personal takeaways are more, you know, taking less things for granted, you know, taking, you know, the day to day life that uh, has been an up, upended in, in so many different ways. I think, I, you know, I think I'm going to certainly try to take less things for granted. Um, I think, you know, from the business perspective, I think efficiency, capital efficiency was always a big deal even before the crisis, but the crisis kind of brings that into more focus. You know, what? how can you leverage technology? How can you do more with less? Uh, those kind of issues become a lot more important. And I think, um, you know, the technical nature of our company has put us in good position for that. But even, you know, I probably considered ourselves certainly one of the best in the industry. But even after this crisis, we have found lots of areas of improvement. So, um, you know, we can always keep making things more efficient and faster and cheaper and better. And so the crisis on the business side, I think, will really push people to be a lot more efficient with capital and, and people. What about on the entrepreneurship side? Have you found that certain people or groups have stepped up or are forced to step up? I know there's a lot of unique sports content going on that people probably haven't heard of, and you mentioned it before, but Nicaragua and Belarus and these type of places get a lot of mentions. Have your team uh, had to take on that role? Yeah, yeah, yes, of, of course we have. But fortunately, because we've always been kind of a scrappy uh scrappy kind of company it kind of came naturally to us but uh but yeah in a short time we added all these different sports including the ones you mentioned i didn't even you know i'm pretty sure i couldn't even place um belarusia on a map uh let alone knew that they had a, a, a you know a football league but uh but yes we had to get together and add all that stuff we've added international horse racing we've added greyhounds we've added table tennis uh esports i think we're up to four or five different leagues or different esports sports i guess you might call them um so we've, we've done a pretty good job i think of of adapting to the new world does that content stay or or stand the test of time or is that something that gets pushed back on roadmaps and eventually might drop back off no i think most of it will stay the one area i'm a little bit squidgy on is greyhounds you know like it's sort of a I don't know. It's kind of a. I feel a little bit uncomfortable with the idea of the fact that you need so many different dogs for it. Um, you know, so I'm I'm a little bit on the fence about how I feel about greyhounds. But you know, certainly esports. I've wanted to do esports forever, so that's definitely going to stay. Uh, table tennis. Why not? You know, if you can, if, if we have a, um, if it's automated and it's easy to price, you know, why not? Um, but uh, but I think most of it will stay. And what about overall volume? Obviously, more people at home, more people on their devices potentially all day as opposed to the the top tier content or any real content being available. Has that been counterbalanced at all or is it is it mainly a negative? No, it's pretty grim. Uh, I don't I don't have the exact number, but I would say we're running around 20% normal volume, something around those those order of magnitude. So like, 
you know, while we do have more events to kind of make up for it, it's, it's, a, it's a fraction of what it used to be, a small fraction of what it used to be. Do you have any sense of what a, in quotation marks, bounce back looks like or once we start getting a steady stream of sports coming back, hopefully by middle of this calendar year? Well, I think it's going to come in drips and drabs. Um, you know, it looks like the Bundesliga is going to come back first. Um, British horse racing is trying really hard to come back in May. So it might not happen in May, but it looks like there's a lot of momentum to try to get that live, at least in June for like the Epson Derby, for example. Um, so I don't know. I think it's going to be a leak here, a leak there, and it's going to slowly come back on board. I don't think it's going to be, you know, July 1st and everything's going to be back to normal. Um, I think some countries are going to be faster to rebound um, for for a few different reasons, uh, some of which I don't really understand. Germany has done a really good job managing the pandemic, and so it looks like Bundesliga is first, and uh, the UK is one of the worst, so it looks like uh, Premier League will be one of the later ones to come back online. So last time we spoke, and I encourage everyone to go back and have a listen, and you'll probably realize some obvious topics that we're not covering because we, we chatted about those previously, but... The U.S. was a topic we, we touched on, and, and certainly now it's becoming more obvious for your business. Just tell us about the the period of time since we last spoke, how much it's shifted in terms of your focus, and obviously you being in L.A. and being in the U.S. market and seeing what's happening. Has that become a primary or a top priority for you guys? Yeah, it has. I mean, I know way more than I ever, ever wanted to know about regulations of sports betting in the, in the U.S., and the uh, terrible tragedy of it is that we're going to launch in two states, Indiana and Colorado, and even they're not the same. So like Indiana has its own laws and its own technical certification. Colorado has its own laws and its own technical certification. So the United States as a as a marketplace is actually a very frustrating, backwards, slow-moving, poorly designed um uh, marketplace to enter into but we think it i mean obviously the united states is a big country and a lot of people want to bet from an economic perspective it's a it's a it's a no-brainer but from a logistics point of view it's the most by far complicated regulatory regime i've ever come across so just give us an insight into that do you have to build everything twice uh in general terms or is it just a a process driven and a detail orientated process that just drives you nuts uh, both a little bit, uh, to give you an example, like there's a, there's a standard called GLI 33 and, uh, I don't know how many States have adopted it, but I would say like five States have adopted, it, adopted it of which one is, um, uh, which is Indiana. Colorado has not adopted GLI 33. So in GLI 33, it calls for the format to include a Y and a date range. And if you don't have the Y and the date range in this particular report, you don't pass, you don't pass the audit. So you have to go to your back office and make a report that, you know, exports things in a very specific format. So imagine that times a thousand. And that's what we've been dealing with. Uh, Yikes. <laughs> last few months. It's, it's to be honest with you, it's, it's really, really bad. And also the United States did a really poor job. And when I say United States, you can kind of think about each state being its own country because each state is coming about it a very different way. The states did a very poor job of looking at the UK as an example. Um, and so they have very, very, very hodgepodge, poorly thought out regulation. And we have to jump through all these hoops. Um, you know, like half my staff has to get fingerprinted, background checks, um, just insane amount of due diligence, um, which is completely over, over engineered. Um, so it's, 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 it's been a very painful process, but we're, we're getting close to the end. So 
what's the rhyme or reason behind Colorado and Indiana specifically? And also just in terms of product offerings, I'm sure you deliberated through what was the optimal way and most efficient way to access both of those markets. Yeah, it was it was more opportunistic than anything. I mean, uh, it was just right price, right time. We didn't really care which state we launched into. We we came close to pulling the trigger on New Jersey, but didn't get a deal in place in New Jersey. So there's there's not a rhyme or reason for Colorado or Indiana. Just we ended up doing a deal with Full House Resorts, which is a casino group, and uh, we you know it's just right place, right time, right price, and we decided to go for it. And are they states that you've identified and, and think you can have a long-term presence in? Obviously, you know, you would hope that's the case, but just in terms of the ability for markets to prosper in those two states, is it a very positive outlook? Because I know there's some states with a long tail of operators that have a very small market share and it's a challenging approach, but it may be a, a more strategic play. No, I mean, I might be naive thinking about it like this, but in the UK, I mean, UK is our home market. There's I don't know, three, four hundred different bookmakers are competing against. So, you know, when you say New Jersey is a crowded marketplace, there's what, 20 operators in New Jersey. So it still feels very uncrowded to me, even though that might be a misguided perspective. But our goal is to be number one in sports betting in every state. And so to me, uh, Colorado and Indiana are more test markets rather than strategic long term interests. So we, d- we definitely want to be in every state um, for the for the American audience. So I got to ask you about political betting. And, you know, recently in West Virginia, there was a, a moment in time where it was probably possible, it seems like, albeit it was a few minutes or, or barely an hour. From your perspective, obviously, with markets and, and politics being, you know, within that portfolio, what does, where would politics fit on a, you know, a volume perspective if we could project here in the US that it was possible and we had a few more states open up? Would it be something that would fit into the top four or five in terms of volume? No, absolutely not. It's also something, uh, it might be a little bit too much esoteric law, but basically political bets falls under the purview of the CFTC, which is a federal regulatory body uh, that regulates uh, commodities and futures trading. That's what it stands for, Commodities and Future Trading Commission. And so the reason West Virginia got in hot water is because they, uh, they went against the purview of a federal agency, which is why they had to backtrack. So the complicated part in the United States, first of all, is not doing political betting. It's it's getting the right license to do it, and that requires going through the CFTC. The states are not authorized to have trading on politics. Um, the second issue is even if they do, it's still pretty small small potatoes. Um, in the UK, we're probably the number one political betting website, um, and it's it's a fraction of the volume. So the problem with politics is is a few things. One, it's it's kind of a niche thing still. Like not that many people want to, not that many people follow politics uh compared to sports uh in general but you know the amount of people that want to bet on politics uh in proportion to sports is smaller the other problem with politics is there aren't regular events you know sports have that really nice property of like the games in two hours and it's over in two hours and you get your money uh if you win and in politics you know we have long-running markets which kind of you know we're trying to create more short-running markets but it's really difficult you know, we had some markets on like how long Trump's going to speak during his briefing, those kinds of things. But the the meaty markets in politics are like who's going to be the next president, uh, what's going to happen with uh, Brexit, those kinds of things. Those things settle once every, you know, four, five, six, seven, eight, ten months. And, uh, you know, they just don't happen often enough to create enough betting volume to make it interesting from a, a betting perspective. But I think it's super – I mean I love political betting. I mean it's one of the main reasons I – 
I founded the company. If you go to smarkers.com, you can see some really cool graphs. One of the graphs I've been watching a lot is, you know, Trump versus Biden, which is which is really interesting. Um, so I think it's one of the best ways to kind of get a real time view of the chance of something happening. But unfortunately, from a revenue economic point of view, it's still a pretty small, uh, small part of our business. I was on there earlier today looking at the uh, the Democratic vice president nominee markets. I don't even think it's an active market. I think you just had some some graphs on there that were available and um, or maybe it's because I'm here in the US and it's blocked but it was interesting because I was having a discussion with someone about it and I was trying to think of how I can prove to them like even even when we're talking about the the Democratic nominee and I said to someone that Cuomo was a I don't know 20 to 1 chance or something like that and they said what are you talking about he's not even in the race there's no way he's a 20 to 1 chance he must be a million to 1 chance and I was sort of like I wish I could bet with those people that don't necessarily have <laughs> all that information in front of them but in terms of the utility outside of the betting sphere, um, you know these types of prediction markets can help with guiding things. Even with um, with Biden and Bernie, it felt like Bernie was miles ahead of everyone. And then I don't know if it was South Carolina or somewhere like that that sort of tipped things. But these prediction markets can have further utility. Yeah, I mean it's it's something I'm I'm extremely passionate about. I understand the term prediction market is kind of a the popular term for it. I think it's a little bit of a dangerous term because people think if it's below 50%, it's not going to happen. If it's above 50%, it's going to happen. Um, that's not really how it works. It basically means, you know, if there's a 20% chance something's going to happen, that means if you have five events, it's going to happen one of those times. And so I think this kind of taps into humans in general. Um, this is why betting, you know, betting companies generally make so much money uh, in gambling companies. But humans in general have a very poor understanding of probability. It's not, it hasn't been built into our DNA. And so people's intuition about the difference between 20 and 30%, for example, is very, very poor. And so, uh, you know, it's very dangerous to, I think that word prediction and prediction mark is a dangerous word because it, it implies the wrong thing. I sort of think about these more like the wisdom of crowds or event markets that gives you, you know, the best, you know, what the wisdom of crowds thinks that the, the chance is right now. Uh, but that doesn't mean it's correct. It doesn't mean it prognosticates the future. It's basically just a, uh, a very, very good guess with diverse opinions um, in real time and it gets graphed and you monetize those opinions. And and so it's that the problem I've always had, I, I, you know, after doing this for so many years, it's so hard to explain the nuance to people. Um, I really think that event markets on events, on political events, namely, should be a very, very important part of the discourse. But there's a long ways to go to kind of educating the the world, uh, the, the you know, educating the people to use this and like what it means and, and how to interpret it and all those kinds of things. So we're playing around with charting and different prices and trying to use percentages to try to bring it to a, a, a wider non-betting audience. But I, I think that there's tremendous utility in this. I think, you know, if you watch the news and I'm a passionate, <laughs> I watch way too much of the news. Um, one of the main reasons I'm watching the news and I think other people watch the news. They're trying to guess what's going to happen in the future, you know, and, and basically the whole beauty of the, the, of the event market or the betting market is that the betting market kind of synthesizes all that information for you. So rather than watching a CNN panel and, you know, the today show and, or sorry, uh, you know, meet the press and all these kinds of things and trying to guess who Joe Biden is going to pick as a VP candidate, you can just go to our VP market and just see what the real chance, real time chances. Right now, Kamala Harris is 37%. Amy Klobuchar is 15%. Uh, 
Gretchen Whitmer is 11%. Laura Kelly is half a percent. Stacey Abrams is 16%. So, you know, without having to spend an hour of your life watching Meet the Press, I can just go and say, oh, look, Kamala Harris is has about a one in three chance to, to be vice president. And uh, this is her chart and her, her stock seems to be going up. So I really think they're incredibly useful. I'm passionate about it. It's, why, it's one of the main reasons I founded the company. It's part of the reason, you know, we don't care about the traditional sports betting model that much because, you know, what, we're here for event trading. We're not here for sports gambling. Um, and uh, I'm really passionate about it. But but we haven't found good ways to kind of bring it to a wider audience yet. Understanding the underlying percentage and probability of something is not always well grasped, as you described. Yeah. Have you yeah. thought about it in terms of U.S. odds is something that always comes up with, you know, minus 110 versus, you know, $1.91 or however it's displayed. Is that something you're going to potentially look at in terms of your launcher in the U.S. and how you help educate those people that will be accessing your applications? Well, it's funny. It's funny you mentioned that even though as an American and even though I run a gambling company, I have no idea. I mean, I still really don't understand American odds <laughs> every time. Every time people say minus one ten, I'm like, what the what kind of system is that? I really don't understand the system. I think it's a ridiculous system, uh, to be honest. But if you if you really want American odds, uh, you can go to our settings and you change it to American odds and and look at that. Um, the product that we're launching in the U.S. is going to be called SPK, which is our sports book product. Um, so we're not going to be surfacing political bets on SPK in the U.K excuse me, SBK bets in the US. If people want to see our political betting markets and they're based in America, they can go to smarkets.com and look at them. Uh, but Americans won't be able to bet on them until we get a, uh, a CFTC license. Is that on the agenda in the next 20 years? Uh, oh, yeah. But uh, I don't know if it's year one or year five, but uh, it's certainly something I want to do. We We almost did it about two or three years ago, but we decided... You know, our company is 120 people, so you can. We only have so many eggs in our basket. We decided to put them more on sports betting because we thought that would, um, you know, pay dividends faster. Um, maybe I shouldn't have done that. Uh, the nice thing about the CFTC is once you get the license from them, it's nationwide. So uh, you know, you can take political bets in all 50 states if you get the CFTC license. Whereas sports betting is state by state. But the but I would say volume. From sports to politics is probably thousand to one. Um, so you know the money is certainly in sports. So on SBK, what can those users in Colorado and Indiana expect as opposed to what they're used to with, uh, you know, the typical FanDuel, DraftKings, Bet America type apps? Well, main, the main thing is going to be price. Um, so in a minus one ten, you know, we we haven't quite figured it out, and our pricing is dynamic, which I think is going to confuse a lot of people. But we're not going to have, you know, we're not going to fix the price at 110 and then move the spread um, because we have a, a legacy in exchanges. We more have the spread and then move the price. But we're going to be trying to do something like minus one or two, minus one or three for as many markets as we can. Um, sometimes it'll be worse, but sometimes it'll be minus one or one in some cases. So I think the biggest shock that will come to people is going to be price. The second thing, we're, which we're uh, we're trying to figure out the best way to do, to do it, but we have an inbuilt social network. So that people can leave comments, share bets, um, you know, taunt other people, uh, you know, share which accumulators they bet on, all those kinds of things. So we, we, I think, are the only ones in the industry that have our own social network that's built alongside of it. So that'll be within SBK or is that linked to the other socials? That's uh, within SBK. Okay, interesting. Yeah. So sort of a 
chat room function type thing with multiple people to, to trash talk, I suppose. Yeah, we're trying to figure it out. It's more, it's closer to Instagram where basically you can like leave posts about your bets and things. Um, so less like real time chat, more like posts, but we're, we're an active, like we're experimenting with it all the time. We've been, you know, we launched this product, I would say six, seven, eight months ago in the UK and we've been tweaking it, uh, for in the UK market. And then, uh, you know, we'll keep tweaking it once we launch in the, in the United States. Uh, but the first, the first reason somebody should use us is, you know, our prices should, uh, slay the competition. I think FanDuel and DraftKings have horrible pricing and, you know, as well as the other competitors. So I think people are going to be pretty, pretty surprised at how much money the bookmaker has been making off of them, uh, once we launch. So let's dig into pricing a little bit. Why can you offer minus one or two and those others won't? I mean, obviously they can, but they don't seem that interested in doing it except for mainly marketing and promotional purposes. And you might see every now and then, um, plus 100 both sidelines and things like that, which are clearly from a marketing perspective. Well, I, I think it's kind of the old school model in gambling, um, which I think will be yesteryear soon. But basically the old school model of gambling is that you make roughly 10% on the customer, uh, which means for every $100 they bet you make $10 in, in revenue. And then you take that that pretty juicy margin and then you throw it back into top line advertising and promotions. And so um, – I haven't seen recent lifetime numbers, but in the UK, like lifetime value of a sports betting customer is say $500, give or take. So that sports betting operator in the UK is saying, okay, I'll make $500 from this person. I'm going to try to, you know, I'm willing to pay up to $300 to acquire that customer, you know, hopefully less, but I'm, you know, in terms of bonuses, affiliates, marketing, all those kinds of things. And the reason why the legacy operators cannot offer better prices is because they rely on that kind of marketing hamster wheel that they're kind of stuck on. And so if they had smaller margins, they wouldn't be able to fund all the marketing stuff that they do. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's essentially it. The other thing is in general, I think most bookmakers are not very good at pricing markets. Uh, most bookmakers are generally marketing companies that sort of have a little bookmaking operation on the side to monetize it. So like FanDuel, FanDuel and DraftKings, I'm pretty sure that they don't even run their own books. I think that FanDuel and DraftKings outsource the, uh, the risk of their books, or even if they don't outsource all of it, they will outsource a lot of it. You know, like a lot of, I think, um, I think DraftKings outsources it to Canby. So some guys sitting in Europe are deciding the risk for all the, betters in America. So it's just such a very backwards, outsourced, um, kind of old school way to do sports betting where we as, you know, we price things. Um, we have a, a real-time exchange in Europe, which basically prices the best odds in the world. And we're able to take that technology and then apply it to the American market, which is just, it's just, you know, it's kind of like, <laughs> like, uh, I don't know blockbuster to netflix i guess you know that kind of like you, you know we just take we we've just taken techniques from finance modern trading all those kinds of things modern technology and applied it to sports betting whereas basically none of our competitors have done that how do you rank the most important aspect for gaining market share between price which we've talked about and the technology because i'm guessing there's uh potentially some com competition between those two and you've got to figure out where you allocate resources and time and efforts and Maybe you can't have all on both. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of where I spend uh, a lot of my day today if I'm not trying to uh, satisfy some esoteric requirement for 
American regulation. Um, I, I spend a lot of my time trying to debate between, you know, which product goes here, you know, what's the trade-off and all that kind of stuff. So I don't know, it's like two-thirds of our company's technical. That's one of the main things that we do is to try to make sure that we make that trade-off. But I would say, um, just to change the premise of your question a little bit, it's a lot more, you know, technology is the catalyst that lets you make the pricing good. So it's not, it's not always a trade-off in terms of like, do you have worse technology or worse pricing? So like the technology dovetails with the pricing so that you can streamline things. So just to give you an example, you know, like we automate almost everything in our business. Whereas I think a lot of, um, a lot of sports betting companies still have quite manual processes, whether it's fraud management or event management or customer service, you know, a lot of these things that, um, that, uh, most companies will throw bodies at, we throw technology at. So we certainly still have manual stuff from time to time, but I would say, you know, out of a hundred operations, like one is a human operation and 99 are dealt with by the computer. So the computer lets us have lower overhead, lower costs. So we don't, you know, going back to that marketing hamster wheel that our competitors are kind of caught up in, we are able to, uh, you know, our cost base is tiny compared to all of our competitors. You know, I think DraftKings, I don't, I don't know if Betfair or Flutter breaks out uh, FanDuel's costs. Um, but you know, I think DraftKings said they lost $81 million last year or something like that. Is that number right? Is that sound right? I'm guessing they would call it an investment. Well, sure, but they, <laughs> whatever. Yeah, no, I think it's substantial amounts I can invest $81 of... <laughs> million dollars too if you want me to. Substantial um, amounts of capital being allocated to future markets, future customers, I suppose, and marketing spend and all those other things. And I think even recently the New Jersey numbers came out for March and Almost all the books lost in that month uh, in terms of gross gaming revenue, just basically, you know, bets taken and, and the results of those bets not factoring in all the other business costs. So it's it is an interesting market at the moment across the U.S. Yeah, well, I think I think the the fundamental problem is most of the the people in the industry have built their businesses very they're very top heavy and very, you know, the technology is outsourced and they're very expensive and they rely on marketing and all these kinds of things. And I think that it's going to make them very, um, unnimble or, or not nimble to, uh, to respond to, um, market conditions. So I don't know. I mean, who knows if I'm right? Like, this is just my theory. This is just my business thesis, but my business thesis is that, People want the best odds. They want a great app. They want um, an amazing experience. And I think, I think we're better placed to do that than any other betting company in the world. So I, you know, I could be wrong, and people could not like good pricing, and they they might want the bells and whistles of a more quote unquote legacy or traditional operator. Uh, but I think people, you know, once you get, once you see one hundred two, why would you ever want to bet at one ten again? I, you know, to me, it just seems crazy. It really does. And within that, tell us a little bit about, you know, match betting, arbitrage and these type of things. Let's just say Colorado, uh, let's say goes live in a couple of weeks on, on schedule. And then we have a pretty robust sports betting market. You're offering minus 102 on a lot of your events. And obviously the competitors are following their own business model. Play out that scenario for us as prices hopefully generally get tighter and, and those match betting options become available. Is that something that you've thought through? Are you, are you talking about Russian table tennis? Is that uh, you know my one hundred two on Russian table tennis? <laughs> you might have to, you might have to start with NFL and go from there. <laughs> you think NFL is going to start in time? I don't know. I doubt it, but I'm a yeah. bit of a pessimist, so I hope so. But 
yeah there's still enough time i think we we kind of feel like it's september already but um yeah. september hope... feels like four years away to me right now <laughs> it's still march i guess or april or whatever it is and then it's it's all a blend so the thing about match betting or arbitrage uh going back to your question is that um you can do it anytime um basically that you know you need you need a buy leg and a sell leg. So the better our prices are, the more you should be able to find promotions or mispricings that people should be able to uh, arbitrage. So certainly the, like basically in order for arbitrage to be profitable, you need inefficient and bad pricing. So a lot of the arbitrage opportunities will be more up to our competitors to see how sharp and fast they update their prices. Um, because we're attached to an exchange and, you know, we have all that kind of, you know, we, we handle hundreds, if not thousands of bets per second across our infrastructure, you know, we are geared up to change, you know, in some cases prices change multiple times per second. Um, most bookmakers, I would say, well, I don't, I don't know what their underlying systems are, but I think a lot of bookmakers aren't equipped to change prices that fast. So we'll see, we'll see if they're able to kind of keep up, but it's a, the the amount that you can arbitrage is basically dependent on I don't know how bad the pricing is on other venues. So we'll 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 have to see. But I'm sure there'll be opportunities and, and certainly a lot of a lot of companies do loss leading loss leading bets and you can arb those and then, you know, get your money back kind of promotions, you can arb those. So any any of those promotions will will certainly help our customers arb those uh, promotions. Where does the pressure go in that instance? Does it all go towards the soft books or the traditional models, or does it somehow end up being okay with uh, a lot of arbitrage going on match betting going on because it seems like that's a a bit of leakage from what those typical models of sports betting would would encounter in europe the bookmakers are making so much money they're okay with a little bit of leakage or breakage um just because they're monetizing so much so much now we were we've been so successful in europe of creating arbitrage opportunities to the tune i would i would say like a 50 million pounds in the last couple of years and so operators have certainly taken notice and they've taken actions against customers that are doing it so customers have to be more and more savvy about masking their activity so that they don't look like they're arbitra- arbitraging or match betting um, but but bookmakers kind of tolerate it for a few reasons. But the the main reason is they still will make money overall in the promotion. So they might they might make I'm making a number up, but like let's say they lose a million to to Arbing, uh, but they make nine million on the promotion. They're like ah oh, you know it's still a good idea. So you know the, for everybody that arbs, you know there's going to be like ten twenty people that don't arb. So the, you know they'll still make money on it. Um, so it depends on the operator and how aggressive they want the promotion to be. But the more aggressive, the more the easier it is for a customer to arbit. Isn't it not cheaper and easier for the bookmaker to just get better, or is that not a viable option for them for technology and other reasons? It's not really how they're built. Um, you know, like especially if you're outsourcing your technology, a lot of the risk these days is outsourced. So you know, like Cambi is one of the big B two B providers in sports betting. They do their own trading desk, you know, and some like I said, I'm not sure where they sit. I know they have an office in Sweden, uh, but I don't know where the the traders might be in Sweden. And I think in the case of of SB Tech, it's in Bulgaria. So like, if you're betting in New Jersey, your bet is going to some risk desk in Sweden or Bulgaria, and they're those are the like the six, seven, eight, nine, ten percent margin business models. Those aren't the Let's see how tight we can get it. The, those models are around. I want it as wide as possible, and people will still bet kind of models, so that they're not they're not 
the, these companies aren't really geared up to be doing uh, low margin betting because they, they, they require the big margins to, to fund their operations. Just one final question on this point. Do you have any expectation that the U.S. customers that you'll encounter and, and acquire will be any different to like those in the U.K. or anywhere else where you're operating? I don't, to be honest, I'm really curious about it. I think, I think there's two competing factors, which I'm interested to see how it shakes out. One, I think the American consumer, especially compared to the European consumer, is more tech savvy and more consumer savvy. I feel like Americans are quicker to adapt, to adopt rather, uh, to adopt new technology. And, you know, we're used to a lot of the big internet, consumer internet companies are out of America. So we're kind of used to new things, new brands, trying new things. But at the same time, the American betting consumer is used to such backwards technology, like uh, like these Caribbean sports books and like the Europeans, you know, the the American sports books that are online. They're very, they're very poor experiences compared to what you can do in the UK. And so I'm kind of curious how those two, um, you know, two ideas collide so uh, but I, I i my guess is the american consumer once they realize there's better experiences and better prices they will flock to that and i think american consumers care less about brand than a lot of people think that they do and you know just like you know facebook was an unknown brand instagram's unknown brand tiktok was unknown snapchat was unknown you know i don't think americans care that much about unknown brands so I don't think like the name FanDuel, DraftKings matters that much once people uh, uh, find a product they like better. So I think that I think American customers will switch more, and uh, and I think the the American betting consumer, which is used to old technology, will um, get educated faster. But but we'll see. Who knows? So on the U.S. market, liquidity wise, obviously you mentioned earlier, you got to think of it as country by country here in the U.S. and just the way the bets are processed and made, obviously I've heard you talk about them. They're obviously fungible and and thinking about it from a more broad perspective though, whether it's SBK now in, in Colorado and Indiana or thinking ahead with your uh, CFTC license and, and potentially an exchange down the line, if things don't change drastically on that front, how do you think about the overall liquidity, the overall risk management and are there, I guess, processes in place that you're thinking about in order to manage that properly, um, just given all the different requirements here? Well, I think, the you know, because of that fungible product, you can kind of uh, look at risk on a, on a, on a pan-country basis, to use that metaphor. And so risk, you know, I, I assume you're talking about absolute risk, that you have like 300K exposure to the Patriots at this time or, or those kinds of things. So um, risk is kind of, uh, you know, you can abstract the... Um, you can abstract the country metaphor way and kind of look at risk on a pan country basis and, and make decisions based on that. But in general betting, the thing I used to be a trader and the thing, it must've been like the first week, but the, my, my boss at the time basically said the only thing that matters is price when you're trading. And so really when it comes down to betting, even if you're on the bookmaker side or the customer side, every bet, is worth taking at the right price. And so in general, the bigger issue in betting is what is the right price to take this bet at, not what is your aggregate risk. If you're taking things at good price, you'll make money over time. The thing about increasing your risk to high levels is your your volatility goes up a lot. So of course, if you, uh, if you take a good bet at a good price for a million dollars of exposure, that is gonna change your balance a lot more than, you know, a million one dollar bets. So, 
you want to be careful about the volatility. But if you have the cash to write out the volatility, the volatility is not the is not the most important thing. It's more what is the right price for uh, you know the Patriots to beat Tampa, um, and so that's that's more of the art rather than the aggregate risk. So I want to ask more generally about commissions and where they're headed generally in the industry, not necessarily any particular you know, region or jurisdiction, because I think in some places they're going up, uh, in other places they're stagnant, and obviously many, many traders would like them to go down. What's the general uh, trend line for commissions at this point? Well, I, I mean, I think in general, most markets, not, not, include, not with, you know, outside of betting, generally things get cheaper, faster, better over time. And, and I think sports betting should be no different. The problem in America is there's tons of hidden costs that we have to pay that the consumer has no idea about. Uh, they're charging, the leagues are charging tons of money for sports data. Taxes are very high. And so the biggest limiting factor, I think, uh, is going to be the the regulatory frame. The expense of the regulation is enormous in America. Uh, with that, will be our biggest impediment to providing good prices for the customer. But in general, barring that, um, I think in general things will always get cheaper, faster, better. And so whether we do it or another company does it, I do believe that somebody's going to come in and disrupt sports betting as we know it in this 7 8% model is going to go out the window and we're going to live in a 1 to 2% world. Um, I definitely think that's going to happen uh, in the next five years. So you mentioned Hanson last time we spoke and just some more details around it if you don't mind about why you started it out, why you don't let market makers do that and what the, I guess, the plan is moving forward and if it's, if it's going in the right direction now, what that looks like. Yeah, so so basically when I started the company, I was really interested in event markets in general. And uh, I saw Betfair and a few other companies, and I thought that the interfaces and technology were poor. And I never really wanted to be in the risk business. I always wanted to be in the, the exchange, the pure exchange business, and, and to let people trade against each other and not have to take any risk. The problem is um, uh, with with exchanges, which I found out, uh, the hard way is that liquidity is really, really important and there are not enough institutions to provide liquidity. So I created Hanson as our own company to provide liquidity. So basically, I think, it, I think you know, it's hard to verify this, but I think Hanson's the world's largest sports market maker uh, right now. Uh, we trade hundreds of millions of, of dollars worth of sports bets a month, or at least before the crisis we did. And, uh, you know, basically Hanson is our own trading desk that sits on top of, not on top of, that is a major customer of our exchange. We traditional traders that trade on our exchange, um, you know, and compete against Hanson. And sometimes Hanson wins, sometimes Hanson loses. But uh, but basically Hanson's our own sports trading hedge fund, if you like. And that's what we use for global pricing. And is it more is it a customer with other exchanges is it something that is kind of isolated and run independently yes no no yeah it's it's uh it it does run sort of independently um it's it's becoming the bigger it gets the more independent it's becoming um and it does trade on other exchanges yes and is the trajectory add more people add more skill set add more trading liquidity around the world yes okay interesting yeah. Uh, I want to ask about API integration as well, and and certainly for the professionals out there that like talking about topics like this and like talking about ways to get advantages. How is it? I think last time you said it, it takes some time for people to get integrated, and um, and obviously the everyday punter and everyday better can't necessarily call you up and get integrated tomorrow, or maybe that's changed. But what 
advantage or value does it have for the the sports betters? Uh, to have API access? Yeah. Oh, I mean, if you want to trade in any kind of uh, systemic way, you have to have API access or be very, very good with a keyboard mouse or grease monkey or something. But, um, you, you basically, you want API access. If you, if you want to do over one bet an hour, you kind of need a, you know, not an hour, but if you don't want to have to rely on your mouse and your, your browser to place bets, you need API access. So it's basically for those of you that don't know, API is a way for your computer to plug into our exchange so that you can place orders with a computer. And uh, if you want to be serious on on a significant level, you have to use an API. You can't, you know, it, it's too inefficient to do it manually. Does it become more mainstream at any point or at least a, a hidden API version where those people who are may not be professional, may not be full-time even, but can set certain things up through pretty off-the-shelf tools to be able to, to execute, execute some of those things? There, there are those tools, but if you're the kind of person that doesn't, I don't know. I, I don't think it's something I would necessarily dabble in. I would kind of like, if you want to do an API for sports betting, I would learn the techniques and, and get serious about it. I wouldn't, I mean, it's not really designed for people to kind of dabble with it. It's more like if you want to dabble, you should just trade manually um, and get a feel for it that way. And if you want to decide you want to take it to the next level, you probably need to go find a, a computer software engineer that can help you uh, code whatever you want to code whatever your algorithm is you know like I want to buy here sell here under these circumstances those kinds of things um, so at some point you have to if 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 you do want to use an API I do think you should at some point involve a software engineer um, and uh, yeah it's not really something to dabble with now there is third-party software we don't integrate with them but there's third-party software that sits on Betfair and the other exchanges that kind of let you automate triggers so it's kind of a way to plug into an API and not have to do with it. But I never really, um, that kind of like uh, middle ground never really interests me that much. Um, to me, it's like if you're a hobbyist, you should use the web. And if you're serious, you should use, by serious, I mean institutional or professional, you should use an API. So thinking ahead for those people, institutional, professionals, and let's just say your your business model is adopted and is the norm in the US and where you know 2030 we're out of a pandemic for 10 years everyone's happy and healthy and uh, you know Chicago and New York and these places are going to have fun set up purely to trade sports in that world does it look like what trading looks like and what the movies show and then how all that looks today with finance I think so but I think it's it'll be more akin to like an an exotic commodity rather than like stocks so like the stock market who, who I don't know what the exact volume is, but like say the stock market trades billions, if not trillions a day, you know, I, the problem with event trading is it's a zero sum game. And so, uh, and, and things turn over very quickly. So for every dollar made, a dollar has to be lost. And so in sports betting, if you want to look 10, 20 years down the future, it will never be bigger than like the stock market, which kind of encapsulates a huge percentage of our economic output. Uh, but I think you, you know, I think it would be more akin to like, you know, people trade the weather, for example, like there's weather contracts and natural gas contracts and, uh, you know, like copper contracts. I think it'll trade more like that where there'll be small desks on big investment, you know, big investment banks. But I think that the, there will be trading desks. Um, but yeah, I would think about it more like, um, like a small exotic commodity rather than uh, Wolf of Wall Street. 
is that bad for the average sports better just given it is zero sum and we're going to have these incredibly smart funds and institutional involvement in the industry well it's a double double-sided um coin in the sense that uh the inefficiencies in the market will be harder and harder to find but that said your vanilla price that you're going to bet on sport is going to be much lower margin so i think for 99 out of 100 betters it's a better thing but if you make all your money if you're a professional better and you're relying on a three four five percent inefficiency in the market to make money i don't think that's going to exist anymore but uh, you know if you're if you're a casual better i think you're definitely going to win just like you know i think i've used the uh the stock exchange world you know now robin hood lets you do free tra- charles schwab lets you do free trades you know back in the day you know it used to cost a hundred dollars to do a trade now it's free um so i think in general the 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 end consumer is going to be the big winner um the professionals that rely on uh the short-term inefficiencies that exist now i don't think those will exist in five ten years but that said the more liquid the market gets and the bigger the liquidity gets that creates new opportunities as well what type of tools and features do those professional traders need in that in that instance? You know, they're obviously going to be very different to what's available today and what the average sports better wants. But are they going to be very similar to what tools they need to operate their their hedge fund now? Yeah, I mean, it, I you can oversimplify it to like in the financial world. There's two things that really matter: it's math and speed. Uh, and I think that's what's going to matter in sports betting: it's math and speed. So the better your math and the faster you are, the better you'll do. And and uh, the the reverse is not is also you know is, is not the case. Like if you have bad math and you're slow, you're not gonna you're not gonna do well. So it's it's as simple and as complicated as that, I guess. Um, you need to have a model that predicts what the right price is, so that you know when to trade. And once your model says this is the right price, you trade faster than anybody else, just like traditional finance. How does the uh, the fairness aspect? come into play obviously you know speed is is critical and in finance you know any of those movies you watch about you know getting the cables underground from kansas to new york or whatever it was or all the high frequency (laughs) stuff it's all you know micro milliseconds type stuff yeah and same now even with things like you know tv broadcasts when it's delayed by a few seconds or things like that people always seem to be frustrated and upset about that have you thought about how that world's going to evolve or, or even now? Like how do you deal with some of those things now that you have to address in the short term? So in terms of like delayed TV feeds and stuff like that, we try to normalize that. with The terminology we use is called managing our markets, which means we add artificial rules to the trading on our market to try to uh, disadvantage short-term time time. Uh, time advantages and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't it's um but like in soccer we have the most advanced rules we're basically we have something called instant match where we match your bet right away but it goes into a pending state so if something happens um while it's in a pending state like a material event happens while it's in a pending state we'll void your bet and so the whole point of that is if somebody knows that a goal has happened before anybody else the the system is designed to eliminate that advantage um in most sports we add outside of soccer we add a vanilla delay such that we think that the market will be up to speed within eight seconds nine seconds ten seconds 
Um, but I think as the industry matures that those rules need to get more sophisticated. What a lot of the leagues are starting to do now is um, they're trying to monetize sports betting by selling really fast data. And so tennis has been a very has, has been a very classic example of something of it's called court sighting, which is basically you're sitting at the tennis match and you um, you hit a button on you know in your mobile phone in your pants that say like the serve uh, was a fault or something, and that you and the mothership bets on an exchange before anybody else knows it. Now the tennis leagues are trying to sell their data so that the umpire, um, you know, as soon as the umpire presses that button that goes to the betting companies within milliseconds. So some of that, some of the ways to solve it are with better, uh, faster data feeds. And some other ways are like you add more delays or you randomize matching or stuff like that. Um, but that, that's one of the issues in terms of like microwaves and Kansas city to blah, 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 those kinds of things. I think the industry is probably 10, 20 years away from that. Those kinds of games. Um, we're still in the kind of, we're very much in the realm of second latency era, whereas, you know, uh, finance is like microseconds. So it's like, it's a world of difference, but we're, we're certainly in the seconds latency world. Um, so we're, we're pretty far away from microwave towers and underground t- cables and fiber optics and all this kind of stuff, but it, it, it will get here eventually. And I think as, as the market gets more sophisticated, the, uh, the rules to manage these markets will also get more sophisticated. Is this stuff by choice? Like, do you guys sit in the office and get the smartest people together and figure out how to approach it? Or is this in the regulation? Because I'm sure regulators have no idea about most of this stuff. And obviously with the US market evolving, it might be, or it sounds like it's probably on the operators to figure out this stuff and then adopt whatever they think is most fair. Yeah, we get people in a room and we debate it. So it's more of an art than a science um, because the data that we get is not very high quality in most cases of soccer is the best. Um, And, you know, it'll be on a case by case basis. It hasn't been that big of a deal in American sports because uh, historically American sports bettors didn't bet in play. Uh, so they, they didn't need to have these rules for in-play betting. Um, in Europe, for most American sports, we just put a vanilla delay on it, which I think covers you 98% of the time. Uh, but I think it's more interesting if you allow people to bet match their bet instantly. I, I find it, as a consumer, I find it very frustrating that my bet goes into a queue when I want to bet live. Um, but it also requires more sophistication of data and, and more sophistication of rules in order to do that. So like... If you're trading live, you know, and somebody's about to throw a Hail Mary pass, uh, pass, and, you know, like, do you stop betting? Do you void the bet if it's caught? Do you have a delay? Like, you know, there's many different ways to skin the cat, and um, it's not always straightforward. So it, it, is, it is a complicated problem that, uh, that has complicated edge cases. couple of uh, quick ones for you to finish off. I see that Tennessee seem like they're about to approve a – a minimum hold uh, percentage and it looks like it'll be 10%. So basically yeah. you've, you've got to have 10% hold at the end of the year, just yeah. off the top of your head, you know, throwing stuff against the wall. What, what does, if you had to go to Tennessee and you had to operate SBK and you had to do all these things, how do you, how do you address that question? Uh, I think it's absolute madness. I just saw the headline for that. And I, I, you know, I, sh- I shook my head uh, vigorously <laughs> Uh, it's really one of the stupidest ideas that you can have. Um, so I was trying to think of ways around it 
So one, you could have a 10% VIG market that prices contract A this way, and then you can have another market that prices contract B another way. So like each market independent of each other has a hold of 10%, uh, but independently you have the proper price. So I, I, I don't know how they're going to enforce it, um, and I haven't been involved in Tennessee. I mean – you know, if that's the rule, we'll, we'll abide by it um, and complain about it loudly. But it's it's really it just I, I, I get really frustrated at my country that uh, we have so many smart people in this country and, and our laws just are so backwards sometimes like the UK law has all of these issues figured out. In the UK, we pay all of our taxes. It's very competitive. Um, anybody can participate. It's not some closed door cabal that casino owners get to participate in. And it's just insane to me that all these regulators that don't know what they're doing just try to keep reinventing the wheel. Um, so it's a horrible, horrible idea. Shame on Tennessee for proposing it. Um, but I hope that they see the error of their ways and, and fix it. So one final one, and I think you've you've touched on this in the past in terms of being a tech-led company, founder-led. Just tell us a little bit about the benefits of that over the longer term. And I think we've discussed some of the, the downsides of potentially the traditional model versus what you expect in the future, but just versus a publicly traded company or a more professional CEO and, and how they approach these types of questions and problems. Well, I think you can run into the trap of like the founder is bad at what they do, which is, you know, it could be the case in, in, in my case, you, but I think so. the, <laughs> it could, could be me. But I think the big benefit that a founder gets is the, the political capital to make big changes. So um, if you're a professional CEO, like, for example, Peter Jackson at Flutter, you know, he's relatively new to the industry. Like he doesn't have the political capital to go do bold changes within the company. You know, there's too many people that work there, too many shareholders, too many board members. And so you you run you're kind of hamstrung, like even though you're CEO and, and people think you have lots of power, you're kind of hamstrung by the momentum of the company. It's really, really hard to change tact of the company. But the nice thing if if you have good you know as a founder founder ceo if you have good relations with everybody people will trust bold changes a lot uh you know well i would say they would trust bold changes whereas in a in a big publicly traded company they wouldn't so say for example we wanted to make uh boats you know we wanted to go into the shipping industry and start making boats you know this is uh, crazy for instance but like i would have a fighting chance of implementing that whereas you know a public ceo of flutter would have no chance of doing that so that that's the main benefit that you can make harder stronger faster bolder changes than you can if you're a publicly traded company jason it's been a pleasure chatting with you again i appreciate the time good luck in uh in colorado and indiana and all the other states that you enter and hopefully uh we can bet on politics uh, through markets pretty soon, and hopefully uh, the world is your oyster when it comes to dominating the U.S. Thank you so much for having me on. Uh, you know, this is one of my favorite podcasts, so uh, I really appreciate you having me back on. 